Well, today, if you haven't already guessed it, we're talking about Jesus as king. And literally around the world for the last 24 hours, because we're almost in the tail end of the time zone, the, the Christians of the world have been celebrating the fact that Christ is the king. And in the, in the liturgical world, this is known as Christ the King Sunday. And there are some specific scriptures that churches around the world have had in their services as part of their worship. One of which was First Colossians chapter 1 that we read first thing this morning. Another verse that, that is going to be read, and we're going to be reading in just a moment, is out of Jeremiah chapter 23. Another passage of scripture that we're going to be reading in just a little bit is out of Luke chapter 23, which is what I just alluded to with the kids. It's talking about the crucifixion of the Christ. And then also, not part of the regular readings, but it is part of it, is, uh, is Isaiah chapter 11. And we're going to be looking at all of those areas this morning. So we're going to be looking at, you can get your Bibles out, Isaiah 11, Jeremiah 23, Luke 23, Colossians chapter 1. Let me do that again for those of you taking notes. Isaiah chapter 11, Jeremiah 23, Luke 23, Colossians chapter 1. But before we do that, I want you to take out, if you have access, pull up one of the hymnals out of the, out of the pew rack and open it to number 14. I want us to read through this reading. So in the pew rack in front of you, you'll find the hymnals, and it is reading number 14. It's called the Nicene Creed. Now, while you're looking for it, let me give you just a tiny little bit of history on this. The Nicene Creed, again, this is one of the quote-unquote universal creeds. This is one of the things that Christians for thousands of years have held that this is what we believe. It used to be that when Christian, when people would come to faith, they would have to actually memorize this and be able to clearly uh, recite it and then also explain what they believed about it. Uh, for us, we just say, I ah, just read it, it's okay. But it, seriously, it's a very, very powerful statement of what Christians believe about God and about how we relate to God. So let's go ahead and read through it together as a group. Read out loud with me, please. I believe in one God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and of all things visible and invisible, and in one Lord, Jesus Christ, the only begotten Son of God, begotten of his Father before all worlds, God of God, light of light, very God of very God, begotten, not made, being of one substance with the Father by whom all things were made, who for us and for our salvation came down from heaven and was incarnate by the Holy Spirit of the Virgin Mary and was made man, and crucified also for us under Pontius Pilate. He suffered and was buried, and the third day he rose again according to the Scriptures and ascended into heaven and sitteth on the right hand of the Father, and he shall come again with glory to judge both the living and the dead, whose kingdom shall have no end. And I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Lord and giver of life, who proceeded from the Father and the Son, who with the Father and the Son together is worshipped and glorified, who spoke by the prophets. 
and I believe in one holy, universal, and apostolic church. I acknowledge one baptism for the remission of sins, and I look for the resurrection of the dead and the life of the world to come. Amen. As I said, this was this was a, an ancient. This is an ancient creed. It's been around since around the year 325. So I mean, this is 2019. So you do the math. But it is it has been part of what we as Christians make a statement of our belief. If somebody said, "What do you believe?" You can point them to the Nicene Creed. That's the general statement of what our faith is. In this statement, we see Jesus himself as being described as very God of very God. In Colossians, we saw this morning, well, let's just go ahead and turn back to that. Colossians chapter 1. Colossians chapter 1, verse 15. He is the image of the invisible God. He is the firstborn of all creation. Jesus, we believe as Christians, is God. We can't explain it fully to satisfy our reasonable minds. But we understand that God is Father, Son, Holy Spirit. There is a Holy Trinity, which is mysterious to us trying to understand how three can be one. But we believe in one God, the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit. All co-equal because they are all the same. Not three individuals, one. But Jesus, the begotten one, was very God. Begotten, not made. He, I mean, excuse me, God of God, light of light, very God. He is one substance with the Father. This creed came directly out of Colossians. I mean, other parts as well. But Colossians was part of what was used when they did this creed. So verse 15 of Colossians chapter uh, 1. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven, on earth, invisible, visible and invisible. Whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. He is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning. He is the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. And you who were once alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him, if indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you've heard, which have been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, became a minister. Now, earlier, just a few moments ago, you heard me talk to the kids about a backwards king. And so we're going to go backwards through this. We are, in 2019, sitting in our faith. It's very easy for us 
to say. Well, for 2,000 years, people have said this, and I believe it. But in the time that this book was written, Colossians, it was only in the 50s, maybe the 60s, of that very first millennium. It had only been a couple of decades since Jesus himself had died on the cross. So Paul making these statements, these are pretty powerful, strong statements of belief that the bulk of the world did not own. These were new statements. These were things that were they, they were trying to help the culture own and eventually become Christian. Where today, millions of people own Christianity. Back then, not so much. And it was the odd thing to say, Jesus is Lord, God of God, light of light, very God of very God, begotten, not made, being of one substance with the Father by whom all things were made, who for us and for our salvation came down from heaven, was incarnate by the Holy Spirit of the Virgin Mary, and was made man. And crucified also for us under Pontius Pilate. He suffered, died, and was buried. On the third day he rose again according to the scriptures. He ascended into heaven and seated at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. From whence he shall come to judge both the living and the dead. Whose kingdom shall have no end. These were new thoughts. These were new words. Going back to the time of Jesus' crucifixion 20 years earlier. Is where we find the story in Luke chapter 23. So let's turn there. Luke chapter 23. Jesus has gone through his entire three years of ministry. Jesus has ridden the donkey into Jerusalem. He has spent the last five or six days ministering in Jerusalem. There's a fervor about this Messiah who is coming, who's going to Throw off the Roman rule. And this Messiah that the people are trying to bring into this idea of kingship does something totally backwards. You would expect a king to come and set up his government. What happens in our own, in our own country when we have our elections on the, every fourth year, when the new leader, the new president is taking office, they spend from November until January establishing their government, putting together their cabinet, getting all of their group together around them to advise them. There's a transitioning that takes place. So you expect in the mindset of humanity, you expect when someone is taking over as king, that they would be establishing their government, getting their, their body of people around them to, to advise them, to, to take over, to set up the armies, to set up the, 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 the treasuries, to set up the whatever the case may be. What did Jesus do his last week? Nothing that you would expect a king to do. And literally, what was one of the last things that Jesus did? If you were, if, let me ask this. I, I read this yesterday. One of my pastor friends shared this on Facebook and I thought, oh my word, I've never heard that thought before. That is powerful. If you were in your last 24 hours on the earth, if God had revealed to you that 24 hours from now, 
your soul would be departing this earth and going to be with God forever, how would you spend that last 24 hours? What would you choose to do? What did Jesus choose to do in his last 24 hours on the earth? He spent the day with his closest friends and he shared a meal with them the night before his death. And he said to them, this is the last meal that we're going to get to share together on this earth until I come again in a way that you don't understand yet. But even before he shared that meal with them, what did this king, this Messiah, the man who was going to become the ruler of the world, what did he do just before he shared the meal with his friends? He stripped down to his underwear and he wrapped a towel around himself and he grabbed a basin of water and he washed the feet of his dearest friends. He literally made himself the lowest of the low in the eyes of his people. This king, this backwards king who does everything differently from what we would anticipate or expect. Humbled himself to the point that he washed everyone's feet and then he served them a meal and then he went and died. But the question for me came where did we get this idea that he was even a king? Because it's in our liturgy. It's in our theology. I just showed you in Nicene Creed from the 300s. He, it literally says, whose kingdom shall have no end. If you look at the prayer that, um, that, that we pray, our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name, thy kingdom come. Thy kingdom come. There's a sense of kingship there. But where did we get this idea that Jesus, the Messiah, was a king? I understand Messiah, the anointed one, the one that was going to come and redeem the people and, 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 and all of that. But where does this idea of king come from? If you go back, again, we're going backwards from our point in, in understanding. We've, we've gone from 2019 to 325 where the Nicene Creed was read. Then we go from 325 down to the 19, to the 050s where Paul wrote Colossians. And then we go back to the 30s where, where Luke is referring to the time in the 30s when Jesus spent the evening, his last evening with his friends, washing their feet, having a meal, and then dying for them. But if you go back even further in history, you can go to Jeremiah chapter 23. And you read these powerful, powerful words. Let's go ahead and look there. Jeremiah chapter 23. It's after Psalms, after Isaiah. Isaiah, I mean, excuse me, Jeremiah chapter 23. Woe to the shepherds who destroy and scatter the sheep of my pasture, declares the Lord. 
Therefore, thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, concerning the shepherds who care for my people, you have scattered my flock and have driven them away. You have not attended to them. Behold, I will attend to you for your evil deeds, declares the Lord. Then I will gather the remnant of my flock out of all the countries where I have driven them, and I will bring them back to their fold, and they shall be fruitful and multiply. And I will set shepherds over them who will care for them, and they shall fear no more, nor be dismayed. Neither shall any be missing, declares the Lord. Now, what is God saying in this paragraph to the prophet? God, through the prophet Jeremiah, is saying to the shepherds of the people of Israel, to the people of Judah and the people of Israel, the shepherds at that time were the kings. He is declaring to the kings, you have done a lousy job caring for my people. You have done a lousy job protecting my people. And a matter of fact, not only have you done such, you've done such a lousy job, they've ended up being scattered instead of being gathered in and protected. And there's going to come a time when I'm going to demand of you an answer for all the poor leadership you did for my people. But then he goes on and he says, but behold, verse 5, behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord. When I will raise up for David. Now, who is David? King David, the son of Jesse. When I will raise up for David a righteous branch and he shall reign as king and deal wisely and shall execute justice and righteousness in the land. In his days, Judah will be saved. Israel will dwell securely. And this is the name by which he will be called the Lord, our, the Lord is our righteousness. Yahweh Sitkenu. The Lord is our righteousness. And as sick as it is, the last king before everything broke loose in Babylon scattered the, the nation of Israel and Judah. The last king was Zedekiah. Do you know what Zedekiah means in our language? God is my righteousness. So in name, he was declaring, he was being declared, God is my righteousness. But he did not honor God with the way that he ruled. God even declared in this first paragraph of 23 that he was going to hold him to account for his poor leadership as king and as shepherd over the people. And God then said through the prophet, the one that I raise up, this righteous branch that comes from the very line of King David, he is going to establish everything that I declare. He is going to reign as king. And he will be called Yahweh Tzitkenu. The Lord is our righteousness because he will be living righteousness. And as I was reflecting on that idea of a branch, I was brought back to another part of prophecy that talks about a branch or, or a, a growth from a tree. And that's where I found Isaiah chapter 11. So let's go back to Isaiah chapter 11. Isaiah chapter 11, verse 1. There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse. 
and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit. And the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. And his delight shall be with the, in the fear of the Lord. He shall not judge by what his eyes see or decide disputes by what his ears hear, but with righteousness he shall judge the poor and decide with equity for the meek of the earth. He shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth and with the breath of his lips he shall kill the wicked. Righteousness shall be the belt of his waist and faithfulness the belt of his loins. And it goes on and talks even further about this shoot that comes from the stump of Jesse, this branch from the roots that then bears fruit. And I know that Elsie and I didn't talk, but I loved, I loved when I saw her put this staff up against the cross this morning that she had tied some flowers too. I know it alluded to the idea of the the the, the rod of of Moses that or the, that 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 the staff of Aaron, excuse me, that budded. But but I thought, what an incredible visual God has given us this morning of new life coming from dead stumps. And it is so wonderful to think about. And and and, and this imagery that's coming up. We talked a little bit about it in our Sunday school class this morning. Jesse, the father of David, at the time of King Zedekiah, was cut off. The, the line of Jesse was done as king. There was no longer a kingdom because Zedekiah lost it. Now, it wasn't just his fault. It was the ones that fought were just before him as well. But for all intents and purposes, that tree was cut off and dead. But God said there is going to come a day when there will be a shoot that comes up from that dead stump. And it will become a branch which will bear fruit. And ultimately talks about a kingdom being established in righteousness. In purity. Now, it does say that this branch, which becomes a sh- the shoot, which becomes a branch which bears fruit, which will become the king, does say that that king will use, um, uh, it, it will hold accountable those who are not righteous, those who are wicked. They will come to account. And then it also says that there will be uh, a, 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 a peace and prosperity, not prosperity, peace and hope for those who have been oppressed. And there will become, the, it goes on to talk about the fact of the lion laying down with the lamb, the wolf laying down, all of that happening as a result of this king that comes in and takes place in prophecy. And so as, as we're sitting in 2019 looking back, we can see how all of that kind of plays together, except from our perspective, we're still looking forward in anticipation and in hope of this establishing of Jesus as king. We know that the word of God says that God is going to raise up a shoot from the stump. We see that Jesus was indeed that branch, that shoot, that came out of what looked like a lifeless stump. We see all of this and we are declaring in faith that his kingdom is going to come and his kingdom will have no end but we're not there yet in reality and so there's this anticipation that someday soon 
Jesus will return. Someday soon, he will establish his reign as king. And that's all, that's all good. It it is part of what we believe. It is good. But for me, there's a disconnect. And what I mean by that is this. I've never lived under a king. I don't have a point of reference for what it means to be part of a kingdom. So when I say Jesus is king, there's a, it doesn't directly affect me. And so I was, I was reflecting on all of this and I was like, Lord, what is the takeaway for me this week? I mean, yeah, Jesus is king, Jesus is Lord, and he's going to come and set up his rule. But what is the takeaway for me to carry with me this week? If I, if I were going to go out into the world and say to people who don't know Jesus, well, Jesus is going to be the king someday, and I can show you all through the scriptures. We talked about it on Sunday this morning about Colossians, and we went back to the time of Luke in chapter 23, and then we went back all the way to uh, the 300, 300s with the Nicene Creed, and then we went all the way back to the time of the prophets but what does it mean for me? And the Lord brought it right back to Colossians for me. So I want to round us up with this sermon by looking at Colossians chapter 1. One last time before we get ready to take the meal. Colossians chapter 1. Now I kind of cheated... I didn't do it intentionally. It wasn't like I was being deceptive. But we didn't read this morning yet the verse that has just gripped my soul as I was reflecting on all of this about what it means for Jesus to be king. But if you go back in Colossians chapter 1, if you starting in chapter 1, verse 15, we talk about Jesus being the invisible God, the firstborn of creation. Talk about all of his attributes. But if you go back to verse and read through to verse 14 we see God it says we thank always thank God the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ when we pray for you since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love that you have for all the saints because of the hope laid up for you in heaven of this you have heard before in the word of the truth the gospel which has come to you as indeed in the whole world it is bearing fruit and increasing as it also does among you since the day you heard it and understood the grace of God in truth, just as you learned it from Epaphras, our fellow beloved fellow servant. He is a faithful minister of Christ on your behalf and has made known to us your love in the Spirit. And so from the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding, so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. May you be strengthened with all power according to his glorious might for all endurance and patience with joy, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. And here's the verse that God showed showed for me. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us To the kingdom of his beloved son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. The kingdom of God is not someday. 
The kingdom of God is in the here and now. We don't see the palace. We don't see Jesus ascending and receiving the diadem. And we don't see everyone bowing down yet. Those things will happen. But from the time that Christ rose from the dead, from the time that the the bonds of death were broken, from the time when all of the efforts of the enemy of our souls were broken and destroyed, when that branch came back to life, the kingdom of God was established on the earth. And as the passing of the truth of the gospel continued to grow more and more and more and more. We see this kingdom becoming greater and greater and greater in the hearts and in the minds of the people of God. And the whole point of it, how does it connect my life since I don't understand kingdom? How does it affect my life? God himself has delivered me from the domain of darkness and transferred me to the kingdom of his beloved son in whom I have redemption, the very forgiveness of my sins. I don't have to understand what it means to be a part of a kingdom. I don't have to understand what it means to have Jesus as king. What I do and what I do and can understand What I am experiencing right now is that I used to walk in darkness. But I came in contact with the truth of the gospel through the testimony of another believer in Jesus who shared with me the truth. And I came to own that truth for myself. And as a result, I confessed and repented of my sins. And God, in His grace and in His mercy, forgave me of my sins and literally transferred me out of the realm of darkness into the kingdom or realm of his light. I am now. It is a it was a it was an actual transaction that God did. We've said for years in our theology, when you ask Jesus into your life, four things happen. You are justified. You are forgiven. You are redeemed. You are adopted. These are legal terms. These are terms of transition from what you were to what you are. And Colossians, if there's nothing else that you take from this today, take Colossians chapter 1 verses 13 and 14 and own them. If you believe in Jesus as your Savior, if you have confessed and repented of your sins, God himself has granted you removal from darkness and placing you into the kingdom of God where you have been redeemed. And your job from this point forward is to call out to those in darkness, telling them the truth. That they are blind right now. That they don't understand because their eyes have been blinded. But it doesn't make sense. Jesus seems backward. He didn't do anything the way you would expect. But it's true. It's real. He is a king. And he can be your king. If you will simply accept the truth. And I can't explain it to you any better than that. But once you relieve it and own it for yourself, wow, 
all of the resources of heaven have become available to you. You have 24-7 access to the Father without fear. The peace of God which passes all understanding will guard your heart and your minds in Christ Jesus. All of that is available to you if you will just acknowledge him as a backwards king. Let's pray.